On the water cooler this week, we'll be discussing the ABC's administrative crisis and asking too about their crisis of purpose. Fred Paul will be speaking to former chairman of the ABC, Maurice Newman. Gender gap hypocrisy. The ACTU is demanding that businesses open their books and reveal what they pay women and how many women they employ. We turn the tables on them as John Slater delves into the very blokey world of trade unions. My name's Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and this is the Water Cooler Podcast number nine, recorded on the 28th of September, 2018. So the administrative crisis at the ABC has dominated the news this week. Fred Paul's with me. Fred, what did you make of it all? You know, the Telegraph this week has been having a lot of fun with it as if this is all one big reality TV show. And uh, it is, in fact, one of the greatest dramas the, AV- the ABC has ever produced. Um, sadly, it's at our expense. The-, the villains and the heroes in this drama seem to swap places every now and again, to be honest. But um, to be honest, mate, I think it is just uh, uh, the-, the further diminishment of the ABC in the eyes of Australians and in the significance of our culture. It's as simple as that. I mean, it, this has been an ongoing decay of the ABC as a cultural institution for a long time, and I think this kind of drama was um, was uh, was always going to happen. Yeah, others will disagree with us that on that point, of course. The ABC still has its defenders. But look, let's look at the public policy argument around this. So, so Fred, put yourself in the finance minister's shoes for a moment. Your job is to ensure that taxpayers' money is well spent. So what are the reasons going to be for you signing off on a budget that promises, you know, a round figure of, say, $5 billion to the ABC and SBS for the next three years. How would you justify that? Can you justify it? I think you could, Nick, but one of the key factors would need to be that none of the content produced is is content that the commercial media can or will produce. It's, it, until the early 90s, I think, this was an easy thing for the ABC to do because... Um, uh, until the arrival of reality television... The, it was seen as too risky, too commercially unviable to be, uh, to be risque as a broadcaster. And then, then reality TV came along and it really threw a spanner in the works of broadcasting. So now it's actually commercially unviable to not be risque. And that's why we see, you know, the big hits these days are all, you know, they're they're tacky, but they are, they, are, they are quite innovative broadcasting ideas, things like, you know, Married at First Sight and The Bachelor and The Block and all those sort of things. That used to be, that level of innovation used to be the ABC's uh, own turf and the commercial media used to kind of steer away from it. The tables have been turned and I, it, it's my theory that the ABC has been left out on a limb since, ever since because how do you, how do you out-risk A that kind of risque programming. So the ABC now, you know, it has then since fallen into this kind of left-wing group think and like to think it's a bit on the edge, but in fact it's just a bunch of undergraduates producing um, loosely left-wing content, in my opinion, these days. So the short answer to your question, to get to the point, is it's very difficult to justify that expenditure. The other condition on the ABC's content, of course, is that it has to adhere to the charter and it has to reflect mainstream Australian mores, and the Austra- the ABC gave up on that years ago. Yes, Fred, I think you've got the nub of it there. The The Charter is the issue. The Charter 
was last uh, redrawn in a substantial way, 1983. That's the charter that tells the ABC what it should be doing. 1983, I don't know if you can remember 83, Fred. I can, but there, there were, what, five, five, four or five free-to-air television channels at best. We just had FM radio. It hadn't been in very long. That, and no internet. I mean, I think the internet was technically in existence or you know, in embryonic form in, in the early 1980s, but it, it wasn't in popular use for, for a long time after that. So we, we're dealing with a charter which is, you know, it's archaic. It's Stone Age. It's, it's in the Dark Ages, really, compared to where we are now. And what it leaves blank, of course, because nobody thought of it at the time, was what's, what does the ABC do with digital media? And, and the whole argument at the moment seems to be around that. And we haven't given the ABC a clear idea of what it should be doing, so it just makes it up as it goes along. That's right, it, and it it as it if it does make it up as it goes along, it it assumes it has the obligation to transition to digital media along with the rest of the communications industry, and that's that's not necessarily true. I mean, if it is going to go digital, it will inevitably be competing against. Um, mainstream media and and that that's unacceptable you know from from a taxpayer's point of view and from a commercial point of view well Maurice Newman many people know him now as a, a columnist for the Australian but in a previous existence of course he was chair of the ABC in a critical period uh, you spoke to him this week Fred uh, and I think he began by giving you his take on current events well I think from a governor's point of view to lose your chief executive and your chairman uh, in in one fell swoop means that uh, you've got a complete change in in those two very important roles uh, there is an acting there but I would have thought they'll have to put the chief executive role uh, out to some sort of search uh, and the government will have to look around for a new chair now with the morale as low as it is uh, with the direction somewhat, I think, in disarray. Do they go the Milne route and becoming a platform for uh, service delivery or are they a content provider? And if if they're a content provider, so many people have now gone, what are they going to do to to provide the content? So it's a very, very difficult uh, egg to to put together again. This level of interference from coming from the Prime Minister via the Chairman to the Managing Director... Is that unprecedented? I can say for my own term at the ABC, never once did the Minister, Stephen Conroy, uh, or the Prime Minister, I had two, Rudd, uh, no, I had three actually, I had uh, Rudd, Gillard, uh, and before them, uh, Howard. Uh, no one ever applied any pressure on me whatsoever. So for my term, that was never an issue. I think Bob Hawke did, uh, and I think Paul Keating too, did apply some retribution when it came to the budget because the ABC's budget under Hawke and Keating was cut by something like 33% in real terms. That's a pretty savage cut. Any business would find it's struggling, but sales went down, or revenue went down by 33%. But uh, to what extent there was any pressure applied uh, I don't know, but that's pretty formidable pressure in one sense. And it does raise the whole question about uh, independence. Uh, as you know, that's what is required of the ABC. It's in the statute, and uh, it certainly has to be at arm's length from government. If what has been said 
in uh, or reported in the newspapers, the chairman should have pushed back and told the then Prime Minister that uh, he was uh, not going to listen to any such commentary uh, and that uh, the ABC would decide what should happen to people and what policy should be adopted. Should the Australian people think of themselves as the shareholders of the ABC? I mean, well, they are. The structure, well, indeed they are, but their structure is you know, identical to a corporate structure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a board and then, and then there's the management, the executive team, but the, the, there's no AGM where you can vote. Well, and also, of course, the method of, of board selection is different. Now, the board does select the chief executive, but the chair and the directors are appointed by the government of the day. So you could argue, well, the representatives of the people uh, are the people who are appointing the directors, and and that is an argument. But I would say that, unfortunately, too often these are sinecures, these are favours, it's patronage, and uh, I think this has certainly likely been the case with, with Mr Milne, that he's a friend of... The former Prime Minister goes back to the, the 1990s with Aussie Mail and so on. And that's all well and good, but the person needs to have the credentials and the capacity and the ability to do that. And uh, you know, some people have had public company chairing roles, um, others haven't, mostly with the ABC, but it's not been the case. Do the Australian people have enough power over the ABC? Really? I mean, it's a, very, it's a pretty indirect relationship. Well, there's a question, really, Fred, as to whether the ABC in 2018 is an anachronism. I mean, uh, do we need to have public broadcasters? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, my view is well known. I don't believe we do anymore. Mm. I think that uh, there is nothing unique. Uh, people say, oh, it's 7.30 or uh, Four Corners or Australia Story. These are unique. But one doesn't pay $1.1 billion for two or three programs. If people really quest after such programs, then the private sector would provide them. The market would provide them. It seems like the ABC just continually gets worse and worse. Is that your opinion? Well, worse, of course, is <laughs> a, <laughs> a subjective, a pejorative, yeah. <laughs> subjective term. Yeah. But if you mean by that that the bias of the ABC is becoming more and more shameless, yes, I think you could argue that. I think that there's very little doubt that it's a green agenda that it follows. Uh, the Greens are a minority party, a significant minority, uh, but nevertheless, there was a study by Central Queensland University, one of the universities which came up, did a poll of the ABC uh, senior staff, a fairly representative sample, 41% admitted to voting Green. So I think it's fair to say, and whatever you watch, there's always a green slant. More than Labor, really. It's, uh, it's more of a green slant. Is it beyond repair? I think so. I think when the culture is so endemic, it's very, very difficult. Uh, the, the, the transaction cost of fixing it would be just almost to run the thing into the ground and change so many of the, of the operatives that it would be almost an impossibility. So how does the Australian taxpayer um, unburden him and herself of this? Well, I think there are ways. I mean, it obviously has a valuable spectrum and you could put it out to, uh, and put it on subscription. People who want to watch it or listen to it could pay, but it shouldn't be compulsory. It could be sold off if anyone would want to buy it 
and I don't know what it would be worth. Uh, what, there is one proposal to just give it to the staff, though. Well, I mean, I don't know quite if you can give it to the staff. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But then who's going to provide the $1.1 billion? Exactly. I mean, there's some 4,000 people that work there. I mean, I think something like $250 million has been spent on redundancies and new infrastructure or new technology under the current, or so the, the recently departed yeah. chief executive. And it's not clear what the benefit of that is, uh, whether it's just been a waste of money. The issue really is content. What kept the ABC going for so long was it did have the news. I mean, the 7 o'clock news was the thing that all, all life and most families sort of stopped while you listen to the 7 o'clock news or watch the 7 o'clock news. Those days have long gone. And the same argument for SBS. I mean, why do we need to have the so-called multicultural channel? I mean, it doesn't matter where in the world you come from these days, you can beam live from your favourite broadcaster. And we're all Australians anyway. I mean, and we're all Australians. come here to listen to the news from back Well, home. precisely. And I mean, we're spending something like $300 million a year net of advertising on SBS. So you've got $1.1, $1.4 billion dollars which could be much more uh, productively uh, spent elsewhere. So Maurice Newman there, uh, uh, not too impressed with uh, his successor Justin Milne's attempts to uh, navigate the, the digital era with a scheme called Project Jetstream. Project Jetstream, the best description that he ever gave that in public, I think, was in an interview he did with The Australian, where he said it will be a big database in which we pour audio, video assets complete with rushes, news footage, news segments and archival footage. We call the whole thing process jet stream, he says. It comes from a bunch of different uh, analogies people often use in digital transformations like flying a 747 and changing the engines at the same time. Uh, this is classic sort of digital guru speak. It doesn't mean much to me, but but no, they weren't going to do that. They were going to build a 380 from scratch, he said. Now, I, this inherently worries me, Fred. I mean, you've got a government agency, in all effect, asking for half a billion dollars or more to build this grand scheme. Sounds a bit like the MBN, doesn't it? <laughs> the government doesn't do these things terribly well. <laughs> I think they, it might be dubbed Project Cesspool by about now. Um, it, it, it sounds uh, too vague, a proposition. It's never been put to the Australian people. Um, whether they approve of this or not, whether they whether they want it, um, and it, it's it again, it's one of those centrally controlled grand visions that only bureaucrats can come up with. Give Mill his due; he's recognising that the, the ABC needs to change. That digital disruption, as we call it, is occurring in the ABC. I mean, I think for a long time in the media, we thought digital disruption was only something commercial media had to deal with because they were losing advertising revenue and, and eyeballs and so forth, the digital media. But it was always plain the ABC was going to meet this point too, and they are now because you know people are turning to Netflix, so uh, that's seriously eroding uh, ABC One's viewing figures as far as I can see. Uh, their news operation broadcasts to a much smaller audience than it once did. I mean, why, why, why will you watch? Why would you tune in for the 7 o'clock news, as Maurice Newman says? So they're, they're wrestling with this, but without a plan, it seems to me, just jumping in without any clear idea and no clear instruction from the government either. I think a lot of this debate is, is, is kind of fueled by a, a, an almost lament that the ABC is no longer central to Australian culture. It used to be, and it deserves a lot of credit for that. It deserves a lot of credit for, for you know, helping Australia 
developed culturally the way it has, and it used to be innovative and, and risque when it when it had the space to do so. But the the ABC can't assume that it will always fill that role. And um, yeah, I, I just think that uh, just because the world is digitizing doesn't mean the ABC needs to move with it. You know, I think its role in Australian culture has almost been fulfilled, to be honest, without sounding too fatalistic about it. Yeah, well, and I, I, I th- in my view, if, if the ABC does have a a future, it is in content, 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 content. It's no use setting up another network for distribution. You know, we, we, we've got enough of those. I mean, there's YouTube, there's Netflix, there's any number of ways they can distribute their programs if they need to, but they've got to create those programs. It seems to me they're not doing it right now. They're not doing enough of them. We can all point to some good shows on the ABC, but there are not nearly enough of them. They're not doing enough Australian drama. They're not doing enough Australian uh, history, documentaries, educational programs, very little culture. I mean, when did you last see a symphony orchestra or an opera on the ABC? Surely. No, exactly. Yeah. And I'd, I'd hate to be, too, I'd hate to appear dismissive of the fact that the ABC uh, can no longer fulfil the role that the uh, commercial media cannot or will not do. If if the ABC can find a niche that that satisfies that, then I, I'd be the first person to um, to support it. But you know, it just doesn't seem capable at the moment of of finding that niche. No, I think that's right, and even less capable than some of its equivalents, like the BBC or or even the Canadian uh, equivalent, which has a very strong Canadian content. And they're just not on the right foot. It's Morris Newman says, I, I'm beginning to come to the conclusion it's just too big a job to remake the ABC and we've got to think again. Many of you will be familiar with the work that John Slater has been doing for the Menzies Research Centre recently on the business model of the modern unions. Uh, John this week uh, uncovered uh, some startling statistics about the gender pay imbalance within the union movement. Let's have a listen now to the interview that John did with Steve Price on the Macquarie Radio Network this week. It was Sunday, I think, that the Labor Party uh, revealed in the Sunday papers that they've got this rather unusual idea that they're going to force public companies with over a thousand employees to reveal if they have a gender pay gap. I think it's ridiculous. They'll be named and shamed. Uh, Deputy Labor Leader Tanya Plibersek said the gender pay pay gap won't fix itself. It's time the Australian people knew which companies are closing their gender pay gap and those that aren't. Well, perhaps Tanya Plibersek needs to have a a good look in her own backyard because a report prepared by the Menzies Research Centre shows that the union movement are among the worst offenders. John Slater is a research fellow with the centre. He's the author of this report. He's on the line. Thanks for your time, John. G'day, Steve. Good to be with you. Um, I looked at the tables in The Australian this morning and there's a clear gap between male union leaders and and their colleagues who are female. That's right, Steve, and it's it's quite remarkable. So the pay gap is a little more than 20%, which is more than the economy-wide rate of 15.4%. And so we're looking at upper-ranking union officials here, basically the top five paid union officials in the 11 largest trade unions. And... That actually equates to a pay gap of $36,000, men earning on average 199 grand, women earning on average 163 grand. So it's certainly sizable. Um, and it, to, to me, it really shines a light on just the you know, utter hypocrisy of labour and the unions on this issue. 
Well, Sally McManus, the boss of the ACTU, said earlier this year Australia has one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the developed world. Maybe she needs to have a look in her own backyard. Well, that's right. And um, apart from just the, the yawning pay gap, another thing that really stood out to me was the total deficit of women in those high-ranking positions. So there were 53 high-paid officer positions or senior positions within all those large trade unions. And of those 53, only 14 positions were actually held by women. So that rate equals about 26% or so female representation in the upper ranks of the trade union movement. And lo and behold, that 26% figure is actually identical to the number of women in the Morrison cabinet. And it's actually less than the level of female representation on ASX boards in the top 100. So they're actually doing worse than corporate Australia, who they love to lambast about on this issue. There are going to be some red faces today. You've had a look at five unions, the AWU, Australian Workers' Union, National Union of Workers, the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, the CFMEU, and the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union. No women among their five highest paid officials. That's right. Um, And I think that, you know, if we wanted to be charitable, we could say, well, these unions basically represent predominantly male occupations, you know, manufacturing, construction, plumbing and the like. So, you know, perhaps it's not the worst thing in the world that they have um, all males at the, the top of their ranks. But then we look over at the health services union, which actually services occupations like disability workers, nurses, aged care workers and the like, which, as McManus always tells us, are undervalued females. They actually have four out of five of their um, top officials are men. So the the imbalance is still the case, even in these unions, which are actually servicing females, which now actually make up the majority of union members in Australia. That looks like to me that they're a bunch of hypocrites. Good work on that, John. Thanks for joining us this morning. I appreciate it very much. Great. Thanks, Steve. That's John Slater there from the Menzies Research Centre. The unions do have fun. They go round all the time uh, telling us that uh, we ought to fix up uh, gender pay gaps. And yet when uh, the Menzies Research Centre does that work, it shows that the union movement themselves uh, are absolutely bad at it uh, and that they don't have the women in the positions that they suggest that women should be in. Uh, They're just a bunch of bloody hypocrites. And I hope somebody gets the opportunity today to actually ask the boss of the ACTU, Sally McManus, some questions. Fred, as I foreshadowed, this whole idea of a gender pay gap uh, is troubling to me. The idea that you look at it as just a sort of aggregate in pay between men and women, and presumably it's supposed to come out the same or things aren't fair. It's not really the way I think Liberals have conceived of this issue in the past, is it? No, that's right. It, study after study has shown that this is this is such a um, this is such a red herring. The gender pay gap is, if you, you'd seen in aggregate, is a result of women leaving the workforce to look after kids or or, um, or making do with lower paid work because they're not assertive, which is what uh, Jordan Peterson once pointed out in a very famous interview with Kathy Newman. Um, there are all sorts of factors, and gender is only one of them. Well, the question is, what are you trying to equalise? If it's the aggregate pay of men and women, that's that's a theoretical figure, right? But we're talking about real men and real women who make choices. What the gender pay gap demands is an equality of outcomes. Everybody gets the same deal. Whereas what we very strongly argue for in other fields is more equality of opportunity. We expect everybody to have the opportunity, equal opportunity, 
to thrive, whether it's in education, the workforce or whatever. People should not be held back, which I think is what Robert Menzies was getting at in, in 43. This is a long time ago, but he was talking about this issue then, saying there was you know, no reason why a woman shouldn't command an army in the field. No, no job should be withheld from a woman just because she was a woman. But his corollary to that was that no woman should expect a job because she's a woman. That's right. I, I was listening to Brendan O'Neill talk to Lionel Shriver today on, a, on another podcast. And Lionel Shriver points out, you know, there's all this constant debate about sexism and, and unfairness towards women. Lionel Shriver says she doesn't define herself as a woman. There, there are far more sophisticated and authentic ways to define yourself other than your gender. And you don't need to sign up to this um, this, this identity politics because, you know, in a free society like we have, like we live in, um, you can define yourself any way you like. I mean, confining yourself to gender politics is to limit yourself. Uh, but on, a, but by another token, you know, if opportunity uh, from, say, tertiary education is um, is a measure of 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 um, pay and opportunity for women, then the majority of it's a fa- it's a no- well known fact that a, uh, uh, that the majority of fem- of graduates in Australia are female. So, I mean. I, I, I struggle to find what the problem is, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So it, it comes to the heart of this whole identity politics argument, which I must say we on the liberal side of politics are, are losing badly at the moment. We've got to find ways to fight this. But I just think at the same time we have to hold out against um, these very lazy and unhelpful arguments because in the end it doesn't help women if they're promoted just on, on the ability of gender. Uh, and, and we have to look for a much more meaningful solution than that, I think. Fred, before we sign off, we've got a, a busy couple of weeks coming up for the Men's Research Centre. Um, what, perhaps you could just go over some of the events that we've got coming up. You can find out about it on our website. Oh, yeah, we are. <laughs> we're very, very busy, mate. Alan Tudge, uh, who made a very spectacular um, landmark speech for us when he was Minister for Multiculturalism, is uh, is back in the fray, going to um, uh, make a very significant announcement about immigration and infrastructure in, an, in his new portfolio as Minister for Population. Um, so that's a big one on in early October in Melbourne. Um, look out on our website for that. Um, and we've got the launch of the David Kemp book, which is generating a lot of a lot of excitement now. I've just come back from a couple of um, newspaper offices, and the uh, the interest in that book is is considerable. And we've also got um, Dan Hannon coming to Australia, who is uh, I think Australians, if they haven't heard of him, uh, a lot of Australians will be delighted to learn about him. He is a very robust, very articulate, and very charming. Um, conservative member of the European Parliament from Britain and uh, he has a lot to say on a wide range of topics. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing from Dan, always do and if, if uh, you want to, anybody wants to find out how good Dan Hannan is on his feet, uh, just Google Dan Hannan and Gordon Brown uh, YouTube and watch his brilliant attack on Gordon Brown the former UK Prime Minister. But, but thanks again Fred, uh, a lot to pack in uh, but uh, Let's talk again next week. Fantastic. Good talking to you, Nick.
Yeah. 